inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. On Radio Western. Last week, we aired the first part of a conversation between my co-host and sister Carrie and author Dr. M. Leona Godan for an interview Carrie was putting together in the summer of 2021 on Godan's book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. The interview did eventually get published in online literary journal The Rumpus and can be found on their official website, therumpus.net. Originally recorded over Zoom on June 24th, 2021, here's the second part of Carrie's chat with Leona. So blind writers, you say, are looking to write about following the model of overcoming adversity. And that's like the pressure that was on Helen to right. write about that sort of thing. Um, so this is why the memoir, so to get to the topic about writing a memoir versus not, um, this yeah. is why the memoir is such a commonly um, seen work written by blind people um, and given the okay by, I guess I call the gatekeeping publishing entities out there. Um, So what do you say in your book about the memoir of blindness and why this book um, for yourself, you say it's not one and why in this case, why you did it this way and and what it's not what you're, you're not, you're not, what are you not trying to say about memoirs? Of course, because you, you, like you say, you reference so many of them and you respect them, but that's not what you yourself could do. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, again, it was very important for me to write something that would bring together all the, uh, all of these different voices in order to show, um, I guess really demonstrate blind culture and the dynamics between blind people and, um, and, and to, uh, well, let me, let me say this. The, the reason I didn't want to write a memoir and I don't even, that was, that was never really on the radar because Mm-hmm. Um, like right as soon as I talked to my agent, it was like I, I'm not going to write a memoir, and it was. I, I think it was mostly because I don't feel like I have an arc to my story at this point. You know, uh-huh. um, there, there's not. I don't. I don't feel like I have a good memoir arc. Um, interestingly, that was something that like James Tate Hill, whose whose book is coming out um, in August even he really struggled because he had a kind of a similar story, you know, and, and the real kind of power of the story, which ends up being really, really great, but he had a hard time selling it to the publisher is that he was mm-hmm. fighting his own demons of trying to pass as a sighted person. And that's, that was, that's mm-hmm. really the, the dramatic tension, which I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that that's something that sighted people find um, worthy of attention. You know, I think they much prefer the idea of like us being really depressed because it's just hard to be blind. And then once we like learn how to be blind, then, then there's that kind of transcendence or whatever, you know, yeah. there, there's not, there's almost like a, a, an inability to recognize that actually what we're fighting is not the blindness itself, but the stigma 
so often, you know, I mean, that's that's the thing that we can constantly fight, even once we have all our tools in order, you know, that we can deal with just getting around and all of the things that we need to do to work and have families and all that stuff. But but the stigma persists, you know, and that's a story that we want to tell, but I don't think it's one that cited people, the, the gatekeepers that tend to be cited want to hear, you know, or think that people want to hear because, because then it goes back to what you were saying, where it's like, we're showing how it's not the blindness that's the problem. It's the sighted people that are dealing with us that's the problem. And then it then it's not like a memoir. It's a yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, I don't know a, a tell all a tattletale <laughs> or something. Yeah, it's a, like a finger you know, pointing, yeah, finger pointing story. Exactly, mm. exactly. So um, I, all this is to say that um, I personally love reading memoirs, but I also really love reading books that are what what my book is. You know, I mean, I didn't write a book that I, I was like, oh, I should do this. It was like, no, I love these kinds of books, right? Like, I love the Michael Pollan books, you know, where, where you learn a ton of stuff, but you have a very firm, a very, um, uh, how do you say it? Like a very clear voiced narrator right where somebody is taking you on this journey to learn these things but you're going to meet the narrator as well you know it's not Mm -hmm. it's not the it's the opposite of kind of what journalism used to be which is like you're supposed to not have anything to do with the story that you're telling you know I just really I love I mean even as far back as I can I can think of like probably the first time I recognized this style was probably Oliver Sacks right where he is giving us some really fascinating characters, some amazing stories about neurology and all this sort of thing. But you very definitely get to know Oliver Sacks in his in his accounts, right? And I yeah. I think he was maybe one of my first influences, you know, in terms of of how I wanted to approach this story as, you know, being very much telling a story that's not about me, but I'm going to influence the story and and not try and hide it. You know, that I'm going to be a very clear and obvious blind guide, you know, through this history. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I mean, I as a, when I was younger, I wanted to write um, what I was calling as a teenager on my autobiography. I didn't know really what memoir was when I was 15. Yeah. Um, and yeah. um, as, as the years have gone by, people wonder, as you know, you're such a good writer, why don't you write a memoir? Yeah. And I'm always, I'm always like, well, I need to, I don't know, I wouldn't, I don't have a good, clear idea what that, that story would look like right now. But what you yeah. said just now matter, it makes sense to me because I, so I'm still trying to figure it out. And I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think that people want to hear it always, but I, I, I'm not someone who would, who is always, you know, is suffering always and depressed about blindness, but I'm also not someone who's transcended like I said, some of the things, embarrassment and shame and mm. some of the things that I, I've lived with this all my life, but it, I haven't been this, you know, my blindness has gotten worse, has, has changed. So yeah. my life journey, so yeah, so it's really hard. I, I see that to do, to all, all blind people, why don't you all just write memoirs? Because I bet you have interesting stories and, and it's mm-hmm. not that simple, but yeah. 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 And I got that even when I, you know, went to a, a writer's retreat, um, which you know, when I shared my, my work and there was this feeling of like, oh, well, you need to put, you know, more, more of you into this. And, and, you know, where's the fear of going blind? And I was like, well, that wasn't what I experienced when I was 10 years old. I wasn't afraid. Like that, yeah. that wasn't my, 
that wasn't my feeling. So, you know, this kind of these knee-jerk reactions of, again, the sighted reader to think that, that, that they know more about our experience of blindness and actually don't even want to hear, you know, most of our life stories because they don't really gel with yeah. <laughs> their preconceived notions and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's a problem. I, I There's a um, book, I don't know if you've run across it yet, but it's by, um, it's called Craft in the Real World. Um, no. It's by a guy named Michael Salises. I can't think of how to, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it came out just this year, early, I think January of this year. And it's about um, like craft workshops and, and how uh, workshops tend to have implicit biases mm. um, that people of color, and he kind of touches on it, but as he's an Asian American, that's where most of his examples come from. But I think you would find it really interesting because it so much speaks to what we're talking about here, which is that even our fellow writers, um, you know, come to uh, to read the work of a of a of a blind or disabled writer um, with serious expectations, you know, mm-hmm. of of how you know we can't possibly be coming at our subject as like normal blind people, you know, that 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 we have to explain ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. to. To, to them because our perspective is different as opposed to their perspective also being different. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's implicit biases in, you know, and he's very specifically talking about sort of the, the gatekeeping of awards and prizes and, and workshops and, and, and how much those implicit biases keep us from being able to tell the kinds of stories that we want to tell. So uh, this is a sort of silly in your face question, but um, there's more to it, obviously. But as a writer, how much do words matter? Now, mm. that's, that sounds weird to ask you that. But because, um, of course, as a writer, I'm sure they must matter. But um, as we say, like blind versus sighted, um, yeah. blind drunk, like you said, um, blind rage, yeah. blind faith. Um, but then like fear, pity blindness as as those things you know all the tropes and all the things um but all the words that we use um that we debate on facebook or wherever i think that um i think i don't want to be in the position i don't think any of us want to be in the position of kind Mm of the um that sort of politically correct whiner right And, and i think that that's what sometimes some of us in the blind community are afraid of saying things like, hey, hold on a second. Can we have a conversation about the ubiquitous use of the word blind as a negative mm-hmm. epithet, right? Can we at least talk about it, right? And 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 think that maybe there there is another way, you know, and, and that um that the reason why we so easily kind of accept it is because we're afraid of just that, of, of, of whining or of, of focusing in. I think the argument that came about that I was kind of eavesdropping on, on your Facebook page was sort of like, well, there are more important things to think about. Right. And it's like, well, my goodness. And I think you said it quite well, like, yes, can we not do both? Like, can we not, you know, what do you, I mean, what can you say? Like, can we have a picnic and can we, you know, I don't know, talk about a bad rotten ham sandwich at the same time as we like fight 
racism and, you know, and I don't know. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, can yeah. we not have big conversations and little conversations kind of at the same time, no matter what you think, you know, is big or little or whatever. I mean, these things are not disconnected as well, right? We, we've both just talked about stigma and, and how, how detrimental stigma is to our well-being on a very daily basis a lot of times right i mean it, it it's 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 extreme and um just from trying to find a job to just walking down the street you know without getting hassled or yeah have your arm grabbed or whatever and stigma i i don't think anybody could argue is is not related to our cultural perceptions of of blindness and and in those cultural perceptions are these ubiquitous, you know, rhetorical uses of blind faith, blind love. You know, I mean, how many movies are probably, you know, blind love <laughs> or whatever. Um, it, it, um, it's so common, again, that uh, I, I really think that the only remedy is for us to be the creators more often. I, I really do. I think... I think maybe having the debate is is a is good, but I I think it's important. Like just asking somebody to stop is not yeah. usually a useful thing, right? I mean, and that's why I say when I say for for you know sighted creators to just step off or step out of the way of. Mm -hmm. Just don't do it for a little while, you know, and and I, I say this many times over, like, we're always going to get the other, we're always going to make mistakes, right, when we're writing about the other. And, yeah. um, but it, things have been so skewed for so long in terms of the, the creation of blind characters and blind people and the blind story and inspiration porn and all of those things have been created for so long by sighted people that it just there does need to be a little bit of affirmative action. I, I do, I do think so, you know, and I, again, I think probably a lot of blind people would not agree with me on this, but yeah. I, I do think that um, for a little while, a sighted writer should think twice about writing a, a blind character, you know, as plot point, you know, or whatever, um, because they've just been so wrong for so long and it's, and it's, and it's killing us. <laughs> it's killing our ability to, to move in the world and have our own experiences. Like I said, you know, blind writers telling me what I felt as a 10 year old yeah. um, and, and having the hubris, the air, I think I recently saw the, the term like ableist arrogance, you know, the arrogant to tell me how I felt because they think that they know how they would feel if, if they were to suddenly go blind, you know, that they, that, you know, Anyway, so yeah, word, yeah, words matter, but I think we, we need to get at those misuses from a much bigger place. And those two things are, are related, you know, and, and again, we, I think just kind of scolding people about like, can you, you know, not say that? I don't know how effective it's going to be. I, I think it's important to have the conversation though, obviously. Yeah. And that's what I struggle with, but I mean, like you said, if if Ray Charles, if if the movie Char um, Ray had, right. did I don't even know, right? Did it, it like why is it, why would it be so hard to get at least one consultant on the project who is blind? Yeah, even if yeah. if it's not going to be the only one who writes the the play the screenplay and and, and yeah. puts that together. Um, but it's like it gets into the thing that I've been doing lately is sensitivity reading. I don't know how much you've um, yeah 
I saw that you do that, but I, yeah. I, I haven't done it myself. It, it is the wild west and it is tricky because yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never want to speak for all blind people and I don't want to give the author this impression that uh, now yeah. that you've asked my opinion, now you're totally good. Um, right. So you don't want to give the all clear without no. caveats or whatever. <laughs> kind of. And it's, yeah. And it's like, um, I'm not saying that, and it's for, as a writer also, it's hard to know because I, I, I want to write stories and it makes me think of all the stories I've written in the past where I've written about maybe mental illness or something. And I've thought, well, mm-hmm. now I'm reconsidering whether I should have done that and how to, but it, maybe it's not like you shouldn't do it, but just consult somebody and yeah, I don't know. It's tricky, but, um. Um, so as far as words, again, I making sure to clarify that this was not your word. You didn't coin this word, but the word again, ocular centrism or mm-hmm. ocular centric, which I hadn't heard of before, which I I can see the word and I can guess what it meant when I saw it. But yeah. I mean, I'm using it all the time now because I love it. Uh, and I think it gets yes. to the heart of this book. But so anybody can look up the actual definition, but um, what yeah. exactly is ocular, ocular centrism um, in your mind and what makes it so um, a prominent word throughout your text? Yeah, it's it's so funny because of course you've, you've heard the story a few times now, but I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good one, right? Because it's like yeah. this book was, um, so I had first come upon the term ocular centrism in a book called Downcast Eyes by a, a, a cr- critical scholar, um, a historical scholar named Martin Jay, who wrote this book um, about the the extreme kind of visualist culture behind or that's assumed to motivate a lot of uh, French philosophy. So very much an academic text, um, kind of beginning with Descartes uh, and then moving into modern French philosophers. And he uses the term ocular centric. And I don't even think that he coined it um, because he, he, yeah, but but he, there, there's where I first encountered it um, in a book back in the 90s or so. And um, he uses it to describe how um, a culture can be not just visual, right? And I, I think we can all agree that humans have developed a cultural a culture that tends to be quite visual and mm-hmm. and i should make it clear that you know being a, a visual person is not the same as being ocular centric um mm-hmm. and that um ocular centrism comes into being when you are not just visual but you think that being visual is the only way to be and that if you're not visual because you are blind or um visually impaired that um, you are in a lesser state of being. Um, And it also is about not just people, but also our our culture generally. Um, And that's to say things like, we don't even even realize that ocular centrism has such a huge impact on our sciences. You know, when I had a conversation with um, this perceptual psychologist named... um, Lawrence Rosenblum, who's also in my book, he he said, you know, in his field in perceptual psychology, the big questions were always asked about sight and then maybe to a lesser extent hearing. And there was basically nobody, you know, 10 years ago that that's changed a little bit in the last 10 years or so. Um, but 
basically nobody in his field of perceptual psychology was interested in asking questions about smell or taste or touch, right? So that's where ocular centrism is not just about people, individuals um, um, being uh, kind of in the position of being a lesser human being because we can't see or can't see as well, but also how our culture at large tends to be ocular centric to the detriment of all of us, right? If we're not studying all of our senses with kind of equal vigor, um, then we're missing out as a culture, you know, and also entertaining our senses, you know, with as much vigor and as much interest, you know, and and then there's like a lot of self-fulfilling prophecies about this, you know, where it's like, oh, well, we don't know how to describe smell. Well, it's like, have you ever read a description of smell in a novel i mean how often have you come across it right so we we think that that you know it's just a natural state that that um that it must be true that we are all more visual and so we only create a culture that is visually interesting or something you know but at the same time we don't try and teach our other senses, you know, in, in grade school and stuff, like how many of us have learned to, you know, distinguish the smell of a orange from a mandarin from a grapefruit, right? We, like we uh-huh. haven't been trained, you know, and then we think we can't put it into words because we've not been trained to, you know? And so, yeah. so it's, I guess, ocular centrism, again, is both thinking of the individual as being lesser by missing a sense, but then also training our entire cultural imagination to be visual as opposed to being visual as well as you know having other senses so the big problem for us as blind people is that then it puts us in the position of either kind of conforming to the ocular centric culture at large um or not fitting in at all right yeah and and, and not fitting in at all just like you said it it feels so it feels so scary because it's so, you know, stigmatized. Like the more you look blind, the, the the worse off you are, you know, and we're all congratulated all the time for like, oh, well, you don't look blind, you know, and, and you're supposed to say sort of like, thank you, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not supposed to look like what I am. I mean, there you go. That's ocular centrism at work, right? I mean, it's ableism and specifically, I guess ocular centrism is kind of a a flavor of ableism, you know, but mm-hmm. it also speaks to again like cultural um, constructions as well, and and like I said, part of culture is is science as well as you know literature and the arts and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, I think it's important to realize that one of the the things that happens when we do that is that um, then we don't exploit our other senses, which means that we're at a lesser advantage, you know, because we're, we as blind people have also thought that, you know, the visual is the most important. So we try and approximate that. I I even saw just, just the other day on a writer's group that I'm in that this one young blind woman said, well, how am I supposed to write? You know, I want to be a writer, but if I can't describe the visual world, how yeah. can I be a writer? And I was like, my goodness, well, describe other things, you know, describe your world, right? And it's like, yeah. we're so afraid to to go against that, that it really puts a, it's a detriment for us to to move forward. Yeah. Um, and I know I felt that too, as the writer, I'm like, well, everybody expects to see all this visually descriptive rate, right, um, language. And, and if I can't yeah. give them that, are they going to 
like well, something's missing here. What's up with that? And yeah. but yeah, no, it's it's definitely um, something I'm working on. But that's why I love Aromatica Poetica because I believe it's just exploring the other senses, and I think that's very important. Um, yeah, and so fun and interesting. And my gosh, yes. look at that great stuff, you know. And you got to, you know, you're you're a big part of that too. So, um, yeah, it's it's exciting to see what people, yeah. you know, give us when when they they kind of are forced to think about these other senses and stuff. And I've noticed that we get a lot of submissions that are 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 non Western oriented, mm-hmm. like from people that are from non Western backgrounds. And I and I think that really is because especially a lot of, I think, Middle Eastern cultures tend to to, to put a lot more um, interest and, uh, um, uh, yeah, a lot more interest into, into their sense of smell. Like I've, he- I've heard yeah. that it's, it's quite common in, in um, a lot of Arabic countries to, 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 to after dinner, you, you trade smells, you know, that you would like trade your, trade your incenses or your perfumes just to kind of, um, you know, see what the other you see what your friends are smelling. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so interesting note that has probably nothing to do with your interview right now. So it's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <I> <laughs> Next interview. <laughs> what was the process for deciding what would go into this book and what you'd leave out? I just, oh, I mean, yeah. like, I don't know how you did that because like, I was even like, mm, I wonder if she's going to write about like prosthesis and artificial eyes because for mm. me that's an important part of my blindness but most blind uh. people don't have them but a lot of people do so I wondered about that because I know that's a thing in our culture and but I you know you can't write about everything you can't write about everything and that's why you know I I, I I love this question because it's like, yes, I want more cultural memoirs right. of blindness. You know, I mean, right. I didn't even, th- I mean, I, now I'm like, oh my God, how did I not mention glass eyes? Well, you're exactly right. Cause I just had, you don't have one. I don't have one. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought about it. And, and yeah. for whatever you reason, and it's interesting. Either. And it's interesting too, because, you know, of course, Helen Keller later in life, I think got one, she got one prosthetic eye or, or possibly both. I'm not even sure. And I think it was a cosmetic yeah. thing, like because yeah. her eyes were two different sizes. Yep. Um, it's interesting because of course she doesn't write about it because of the, the time that she lived in. I don't think she ever writes about it as far as I can tell or that I can remember. Um, so maybe if one of my memoirs that I was kind of heavily drawing upon kind of put pressure on it, I, I, I probably would have, you know, um, Anyway, so that's my excuse. But the other thing that I will say that I I really wanted to touch upon, and then finally felt like, man, this is a whole nother can of worms. That I, I, on the one hand, I I would love to do it, but I don't think I'm the best person to do it. And and mm-hmm. that is to talk about race and blindness. Yeah. Um, and I tell you what, I have I have a friend who's a comedian. Actually, he is a blind comedian. Come to think, of it, visually impaired comedian. He's uh, um. Uh, his uh, albinism um and and he's a black guy right but he appear his skin appears like a white person's and so he like he is writing a memoir as far, I, I think i think i last saw that he's working on a memoir so i mean he's going to be able to talk about blindness and race in such an interesting way so i'm really mm-hmm. i hope he does a little bit of cultural stuff there but i there's a million people that could probably write this book write more books you know this kind of cultural memoir take um and really fuse together um blindness and race because I don't know if it's been your experience in in Canada but I do know that in in New York like I I was doing karate for a while 
And I mean, man, it was a mixed bag of us blind folk that were together, literally from like every corner of Manhattan, you know, from the, the black guys from the Bronx, Chinese guys from Chinatown, um, you know, me, white, half Greek over from Astoria, you know, I mean, just really kind of united colors of Benetton type situation. And I I think it has a lot to do with the fact that there's just not that many of us. And so we don't even think about it. Right. And like, you know, we want to do some karate and we happen to be blind people and we get to be buddies. So there's like that aspect, but then there's also the aspect of what I came across that um, blindness was kind of used for uh, like discussions around race in the sixties. And apparently there was this, this very famous picture that I really wanted to talk about. But um, again, it felt like it was just going in another direction and I had to leave it out. But uh, there were these two little blind kids, like a little white kid and a little, you know, uh, black kid, both blind. And of course the tagline was uh, be blind to race or, you know, Mm. racial blindness or something like that. Right. So it's weird because it's like, you're using the metaphor of blindness for good but it also just feels kind of like oh my well it's not like it feels wrong yeah it feels wrong somehow because it's kind of like yeah it's using that that same kind of metaphorical blindness in order to you know fight the ills of racism but then what about the blind kids and fighting ableism i don't know it's just like it gets kind of messy and, and weird and and also it's like wait a minute but we know that we're not of the same race it's got nothing to do with not you know, not seeing the other yeah. person's race. It's, it's got to do with not being a jerk and not being a racist, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, again, it's that kind of like, it's almost like, oh, of course you're not a racist because you're blind. Or of course you're, you know, don't have to worry about sinning because you're blind. Or of course you're going to be like a beautiful singer. You know, it's like all these things kind of go together of like, oh, you must just be a generally like good saintly person because you can't see, which is like, you know, we know is ridiculous. So, um, so yeah, that got left out. I mean, there were just things that I couldn't do. I mean, certainly yeah. this is Western culture, right? I mean, I would love for somebody from, you know, uh, from Chinese culture, you know, to, to, to write about, to, to do something similar or, or several people, yeah. you know, to, to do something similar, similar. Cause again, I think these are so cool, right? I really love this, this kind of burgeoning genre of like cultural memoir or of kind of personal cultural history or, or whatever, because it's, yeah. it's so, it, it just expands the realm of what memoir or personal narrative can do. You know, it, it just makes it so wide and, and, and it does, it fights the inspiration porn impulse, right? It totally does. It dismantles it because then you're not worried about this arc, you know, what we were talking about before. But instead, you can, you know, use your, again, your perspective to its full advantage to, to, to instruct and to to investigate and stuff. Mm-hmm. Outlook. On Radio Western. And now, here's the final segment of Carrie's chat with Leona Godin on the book Their Plant Eyes: A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. Who did you write this book for? Like, mm. if you could sort of sum it up. Um, it, if it's a few yeah. people, then that's great. But um, must have had an idea when you were writing, kind of. You know, it's funny because I probably, 
I probably should have. And and I, I think that, you know, a, a lot of really great writers do think about their their reader or their kind of their ideal reader. Um, if I was thinking about, who was I writing this to? Um, I guess this sort of, the the intelligent curious person i don't know i mean i think it is kind of generic you know i i can't yeah. think of a specific person i mean at different moments i thought of different people um i i think i did think about my blind friends reading this um i thought about my professors reading this you know i um but mostly I was writing to, I don't even know how to say it exactly. I don't know, like maybe a, maybe a, like an NPR crowd, you know, somebody who would uh. kind of get into the the quirkiness of, of some of the stories, you know, and, and be able to kind of come along with me right on this ride and, yeah. and be able to, 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 to be okay with me talking about Sophocles in one moment and my own experience of teaching Sophocles in the next and and kind of allow themselves to to ride the wave in order to kind of get the big ideas as as they come but through the minutiae I guess is is the thing so I don't know if I have a really good answer for you no that's Um, that's that's brilliant like it's not like it has to be I I wrote it for sighted people because I wrote it for blind people because it's more generic than that, more over overarching than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talk about words battering and stuff, but we also talk about symbols. And so you talk about tropes and symbols. So like, for example, the white cane is a stigmatized emblem mm-hmm. with such un, um, universal recognition and power, but uh, simply holding it can make you blind, right? Like, oh, I don't want to yeah. carry, I don't want a cane because then I'll be blind. Well, I yes. you know you're yeah. already blind. I don't want to wear glasses because uh, that people know I'm blind or have a guide dog, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. So you write in your your own anecdotes about experiencing shame back from when you were a teenager and you had trouble, you couldn't read, you know, all that stuff um, about going blind and about blindness in general um, from the age of 12, I guess. How has the writing of this book uh, impacted that feeling um, either by putting it something into further perspective for you or um, adding to your journey with shame, like if you're still on that journey, obviously, like I said, I am too. Um, yeah. Now that it's out and you can look back on the writing of it. and I think that I went into it feeling already like a lot of that work had been done. Um, I I did feel like I've read, you know, these memoirs and I, and I kind of came, had already come to the conclusion that this this stigma that the shame is so much a part of our experience that it's kind of like why I wrote the book. I think I even say that at one moment because I mm. feel like that shame that we hold is like so debilitating. It's almost it, yep. you know it's it's in many cases, especially when you've been dealing with blindness for a long time, it's it's more debilitating than the the fact of blindness, the fact of not seeing. You know, yeah. um, I that said, I mean. I've come a long way and I still have a long way to go. Um, I feel like there are ways in which I'm completely comfortable with my blindness and there are other ways that I'm, I'm not. And I, I am embarrassed about how, you know, my, my cane skills are not very good and I, mm-hmm. I can't read Braille that, you know, very well. And so I really want to work on my, my blind skills, you know, cause I, I, I feel like how I, 
mm, how I feel shame these days is not about looking blind. I kind of got over that for the most part. Um, but I haven't, I haven't yet really done a good job of being a blind person yet. So, so there's that. So, um, Whatever that means, yeah, yeah. Like I want to, I want to be, I want to be better, but I also feel kind of overwhelmed about how much just there is to do day to day. And I mean, yeah. that, that's something that people don't realize is that, like, you know, like cane training is is a skill. You know, being a good cane user is a skill, and you do have to dedicate some time to it. Um, yeah, and and you have to practice. You know, and it's something yep. you have to do a lot. And so, you know, I'm with my partner so much that I've gotten kind of yep. lazy. And I don't, you know, go out a ton by myself and, uh, or barely at all by myself these days. And, um, you know, so again, when I hit my computer in the morning, I don't feel my disability, but when I walk out my door, I sure do. And I would like to be better about that for sure. Right. No, I, I can totally relate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, so as, as you already pointed out already, um, you write about wanting to prop up a cacophony, I love that, of blind voices. How have you accomplished this, do you feel, in their plant eyes? Mm. I think you've done well, but I don't know from your side of it. If you, Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because I even was still coming across books as I was finishing up, you know, that I was like, oh, can I insert this? Can I stick it in a footnote, you know? Because um, I, I did get an early copy of of. Uh, James Tate Hill's Blind Man's Bluff that's coming out mm-hmm. in um, August. And, you know, I was like, oh, like, because he also, he experiences central blindness. And that was my experience for many years as a visually impaired person. And he has a couple of really great descriptions of it. And I was like, oh, can I stick that in there? You know, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are so many more, you know, I, I just recently also got an early copy of, um, of, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Elsa Elsa Hunnison, um, her her book's coming out in October, and uh, so it's ongoing. I mean, that's why I want yeah. to kind of turn my attention to having a website, kind of like, you know, Aromatica Poetica is kind of the smell and taste, and then I want their plant eyes, the website, to be all about the 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 sight blindness continuum. You know, uh, definitely skewed towards blindness, of course, but um, but really the visual experience. Um, or Beautiful. lack thereof visual experience. And um, so I think it'll be really fun actually to to put some reviews of these books up there and continue the cacophony because I by no means exhausted it in this book. Um, no. But I tried. I tried real hard. You did, yeah. <laughs> so how did um, accessible tech aid in the writing of this book? And you sort of touched a bit about that um, already, but yeah, for people who don't know enough about assistive tech and how that has helped. Like you said, technology has been a big thing for blind people. People don't realize how much. Yeah. I mean, my God, I just went to the doctor's office the other day, you know, and it was just one of those totally painful experiences, you know, of, of meeting a new primary care, what might've been my primary care doctor. And, uh, you know, her saying, you've got some sight issues and me saying, yeah, I can't see. And her saying, I'm sorry, you know, starting right there. I'm like, oh, like this is not going well. And then, you know, her telling me about signing up for my chart and being like, oh, well, do you have somebody to do that for you? You know, I mean, you know, not even asking, you know, 
can you do email or, you know, do, mm-hmm. do you use computers or, or, I mean, even that would be kind of like, can we just assume that I do and then move on mm-hmm. from there? But, um, but not even that, it was just sort of like, oh, you can't was sort of the, the default, you know? So somehow we have not gotten the word out, you know, yeah. that we are like super tech savvy. I mean, most of us are probably have been probably, you know, attached to our computers long before a, a lot of our, our, you know, cited peers. I knew that I was one of the first people that I knew that had a had a computer and used email and and really embraced technology because it was such a game changer. Even you know back in the '90s and stuff to have my text enlargement software and stuff. It was the difference between being able to 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 type. You know, because I, I learned how to type quite early, so I can I've always been able to t- to touch type. Yeah, me but, too. Um, but yeah, like using my mom's typewriter and not being able to read what I was typing, you know, and then suddenly yeah. getting a computer and being able to enlarge the letters and voila, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the digital age is amazing. I mean, also back then, you know, I was getting books on tape, which, you know, that was great. I mean, it was better than not having any books at all. But man, you know, relying on volunteers, they would take like two weeks to come around. I mean, it was just, you know, yeah. so much. I mean, now the fact, you know, everybody poo-poos, you know, the ebook and stuff, but you and I know that like the ebook is a game changer. I mean, it is, it is the thing that allows us to get books at at the same time as our sighted peers. I mean, this is so amazing. I I, kind of makes me misty eyed every time I talk about it because it's just, it's so wonderful, you know, that I can read a review in the New York times and, 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 and get that book immediately, you know, and, and then access it in whatever way we need to, right. And this is the beauty of digital technology is that if we are visually impaired, we can enlarge the text. If we have braille uh, displays, you know, we can read it in braille. If we have text to speech, we can do that. So all the ways, right. All the senses that they've meant that, that reading is thus far possible, we can do with a digital ebook, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, game changing as a, as a reader, as well as, as a writer, and probably even more importantly as a reader, because as we know, you, you can't, you can't be a, a writer without reading a lot. And, yeah. and being a part of the conversation, you know, and that means also accessing journals and things like that. So um, again, sometimes the really artsy literary journals, they, they still are kind of refusing to print digitally, you know, but yeah. I think it's changing, you know, I, I think, and I hope that it is changing. It certainly has changed a lot in the last five, 10 years. So I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the audiobook, uh, just because it's such a unique thing that people wouldn't think. So um, you say there are many ways of reading and you hope the reader um, enjoys this one. Uh, Why was it important to sort of include that before you began um, narrating? Yeah. um, So as I said, I'm still a very slow Braille reader. I hope to change that one of these days. Um, So most of what I do is, is by ear. I basically... 24 hours, seven, have like an earbud in my right ear. And most often I I have a book in it. So, you know, for me, electronic reader is the way to go. I don't listen to quite as many audiobooks, funny to say, but I do. I I do. Probably maybe one audiobook, that is to say, like a human narration as as opposed to an electronic voice. Um, Maybe one to one to 10 would maybe be the ratio. I like the electronic voice because I can kind of ignore it. You know, I don't think of it as a voice. It, it maybe is the closest approximation 
to the voice in my own head, whatever that may say about me, or, but you can just kind of let it go, you know? Um, so when I was approaching the audiobook and I realized that I just wasn't going to be fast enough to read it in Braille, I decided to do what I've been doing for many performances over the years, reading performances where I have the earbud in my ear and I kind of scroll down. I cut the lines really short and I scroll down and, and basically do what I call a electronic Cyrano method um, of kind of repeating, hopefully with more inflection and, uh, you know, uh, uh, passion than my electronic reader does. I repeat mm -hmm. the words. Now, when I was doing performance readings, uh, I would practice a lot, you know, and yeah. I realized that I could not exactly use the same, that, like I couldn't quite approach things the same way. And here's where it's really handy to have like fellow blind writer friends. So it was actually James Tate Hill who mentioned that he actually uses his Victor reader stream and just lets the text go at a very slow speed and kind of uh, reads along that way when he does mm -hmm. readings. Yeah. And I was like, do that, yeah. ah, I was like, oh, well, that's much more doable with like a 350 word text. So I kind of ended up doing a little bit of a hybrid approach, but mostly I did it his way. But the cool thing about doing it in my Word document was that I could, you know, kind of stop and go back and, and also add like periods and commas in places that needed a rest, but that weren't yeah. actually grammatically there. So, yeah. so that's how I did it. It was, um, it was, it was a little touch and go at first, um, because it was, again, such a new experience to be reading something so long that I didn't, I couldn't, you know, practice quite as much as I, I would have done for a five minute performance. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was new for, you know, for, for the director. I mean, I was so grateful that they let me do that because, um, you know, none of us really knew if it was going to work out. So, um, mm -hmm. But I felt like I wanted to say something. Uh, we all kind of agreed upon it. Like the, the audio book produ production is maybe bigger than people know about or than mm -hmm. a lot of people know about. So we have we had a director um, who was zooming in. So she was only by ear. So she she, she um, was only listening. And then we had an in engineer in the next room who could peek over if they needed to, but mostly was also just listening. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was in the sound booth, uh, the recording booth. And then there's also um, like a, 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 you say, like an executive producer or whatever that was kind of in charge of the whole product project and, and who, you know, moves the, mm -hmm. the track onto an editor and stuff like that. So there's quite a few people that are involved in, in an audiobook production. And um, it was basically the, the executive producer and the, um, the director and myself who talked about it beforehand and said, well, why don't we put it, you know, a kind of a disclaimer or a note, you know, and I, I feel bad calling it a disclaimer, but I'm not sure what else to call it, but um, a little announcement saying, this is how I'm reading. And interestingly as well, um, if you listen to the audiobook or you read the audiobook, you will hear me slip a couple of times because apparently this is a thing in the audiobook industry where when um, when a writer says reader or that you are reading this right now, the director has you actually change it to listening. Right, yeah. And then I kind of realized that, wait a minute, the whole thing that I said in the beginning was that like reading by ear is, you know, reading you know and that we you know we've made some jokes over the the last few weeks because um it's like what, what what would you say if you knew somebody was 
reading it in Braille when you say, oh, like, dear toucher, you know, yeah. or something, you know, so it's like, why in the world would you make these changes? Um, um, it's all reading. And so it's funny because in the beginning, I missed one. And then I, and I really had to have a big debate with my director to explain to her what I was saying. But I was like, look, we said it right up front, you know, listening is reading, you know, it's, yeah. It's not the same as listening to a TV show. You know, this is, we're still in the realm of books here. And so we, you know, so that was an interesting aspect of it. And um, I hope we can maybe stop that silly trend of changing reader to listener in the audiobook world. That's my, that is my um, public service announcement. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so Stevie Wonder, so this is going to get to the fact about having Braille on your book cover, which is just fabulous, even though, of Yay. course, I can't read the whole book because it's not all in Braille, but the fact that there's a Braille title is like someone who would love to go through bookstores and just know what books mm. are all around me to be able to know what that title is in that cover. It's just great. That would but, be amazing, right? Because even if you just yeah. had Braille on the cover, you could take it home and scan it or whatever. I mean, my goodness. Yep. At least I know what it's about, what it you is. You can browse in the way. Yeah, exactly. You can browse in the way that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. yeah, but um, Stevie Wonder when he had a Braille messages on his uh, albums and things back in the day, um, mm. for fans, he said, "Here's my music, and it is all I have to all I have to tell you, um, to tell you how I feel." Yeah. So, how are you feeling now that this book is finally out? Um, oh, like <laughs> I have I said everything? Like, it, like do I? Yeah, like, this I, is all I have to to tell you. Oh God, I have so much more to say, Carrie. If you haven't <laughs> exactly. noticed, I'm a well, that, bit of a talker. That's a good answer. That's, that's great. Yeah, no, I obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. More to more to come. More to come. So right. But I mean, in terms of like straight on, uh, how, how should I say it? Like on the nose nonfiction about blindness. Maybe not. I think that that'll maybe be through the through the website and hopefully through other interviews and uh, other. I want other people to join that conversation, but, um, it, you know, I, I don't think I have another personal and cultural history of blindness in me, but so mm. I think in that way, I'm good. You know, a lot of the stuff that I've been working on for 20 years of my life, I, I think I can kind of, um, step away to, from it mm-hmm. to some extent, as much as I can step away from, you know, who I am <laughs> or who I've been, I guess, for the last 20 years. So. And so the fact that, that, I mean, I don't know what you had to do to fight, to act, was it a fight or was it just asking to get Braille on the cover to explain to them why that mattered and why it, it does make sense, um, what it means to you that, that your book is one of the few that has Braille on its cover. Like, I think all of them should. You know but. what? I, I think it was their idea. You know, I okay. think, I think, I think I had mentioned it, you know, ah. and I, I think I would have asked for it, but it was, it's funny, you know, you. Basically, you don't have a lot of control over covers as an author. Right. So it was really like one day I get an email and, you know, there's an image of the the cover um, and they, they, from the outset, that they said it was Braille. The things that I had to fight for. Okay. So interestingly, um, the first version of the cover was much much more simple than than the cover that we have now it was and it was green mm. um and it was kind of a, a band of a kind of a swath of green and then it had the braille but it had braille in kind of slightly larger braille which of course in the book I'm kind of like well larger yeah. braille is not really braille because you, you know, like that's what braille invented was kind of you know this nice 
finger gliding, uh, finger appropriate size dots, right? In, in, yeah, in configurations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so first of all, I had to say, no, 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 we need to have standard Braille. Do you want me to hook you up with, you know, NLS? Mm-hmm. And I said, we want, we were going to have grade two Braille for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then I said, you know, green has nothing to do with anything. I don't know if they were going on the plant part, you know, but this is mm-hmm. a metaphor. So I was like, I was like, if we're going to have this kind of, um, you know, swath of color, I want it to be I want it to be sort of reminiscent of the electromagnetic spectrum. So I wanted it to at least kind of have a hint of, say, the the colors that are beyond human vision. So the ultraviolet is kind of what I was uh-huh. what I was wanting to go on. So that's kind of where we went for the the color scheme. And then they had this kind of they they took it to another dimension and made it kind of all swirly in this kind of misty thing, which seems to me that maybe be reminiscent of kind of how I see. And I know a lot of blind people have a lot of swirls mm-hmm. and pixelations and all ah, that sort of thing. So I'm going to so, end the interview in a minute. So hopefully in a minute here. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that's where that came in. And so I, Oh, the funny thing, you'll, this might not be interesting for, you know, readers of the rumpus, but you will be interested to hear that the mm-hmm. first, they sent me a proof of the cover um, to, to check it. And somehow, I mean, they did a beautiful job. They had all the grade two Braille. They had everything correct. Somehow they forgot to put spaces between the words. Uh, I think that they thought that the capitals uh, worked as spaces or something. Yeah. Well, see, I I got, I couldn't help myself, even though I know there's been some issues around it. But the, the Barbie doll of Helen Keller that just came out, it's the yes. same thing. On the bo- back of the box, <gasps> the NFB was consulted, I guess it was in charge of this, but to save space, I assume why they did it, but there's this little blur, but they just, there's no spaces, which- No way. It's really hard to read Braille. Um, yeah. Like but I, you know, for as long as it's not a whole book like that, it's fine. But yeah. Right. That is amazing. I can't believe that they, yeah. 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 So they, I think they just, you know, flat out made a mistake. I think maybe that, that, yep. they thought that the little- capital six dots were, were spaces or something, right. you know, yep. I, I, I don't know. So, but, but I, I was like, uh, we got to put some spaces in there. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. so you say so many stories of blindness, um, obviously like there are a lot of stories that have blind characters as you've shown, um, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, but mostly not written by blind people, as you said. So again, to reiterate, why do you say it's important that this changes? Oh, well, I mean, as as we said, um, because there's no. Actually, maybe I haven't said this in this interview. So you might have already but, said it. I don't. I, I may or may not have, but I. It doesn't hurt to say it again here, which is to say, the the actual experience of blindness is basically not told ever. Uh, and again, I think that's because the, there's no blind people writing that experience. So, so the vast middle ground between, say, the poet prophet you know, superhero on the one hand and the pitiful um, kind of blind beggar buffoon on the other hand, like the vast middle ground that we all, almost all of us occupy doesn't exist in literature and in film. You know, the, and that's to say the the blind mother, the, the blind uh, lover, uh, yeah. heterosexual or, 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 or any sexual orientation. I don't even know if mm-hmm. that's the word that people use anymore, but mm-hmm. I'm losing my words now. Um, uh-huh. no, so I- all the aspects of, of being a human being and just going about your business and, and working and, and parenting and all of these things are, are not explored 
because we're not writing our our own stories. And I mean, men, if, if we believe in an own, own voices movement at all, when it comes to to race and and other, um, yeah put upon minorities in, in this world, if we if we believe in own voices stories at all, then we need to believe in blind and disabled own voices stories too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like the thing, the example you gave at the end of your book there, I forget his name who, who wrote that, but something about he's exploring how there's able, there, there's like, um, there's um, racism and, and sexism, but he never even brings in ableism to it. He doesn't think that that is one mm-hmm. of them, a human rights thing. He thinks that's a medical thing. We need to cure yes. and, and fix disability. David you know, Pinker. Daniel Pinker. Guy. Pinker. Daniel Pinker. Yeah. Pinker, yeah. Pinker, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it's incredible, right? I mean, it's like, oh, gosh. And and that's where I, I've been kind of pounding on this idea of un, being a normal blind person, right? That that almost yeah. feels like an oxymoron to a lot of a lot of people. And I think that that could also be said for dis- disability general, right? To to yeah. be a normal disabled person, right? And and that and and, and that, that is just this vast landscape of of literary and cultural interests that we have yet to explore. And and so it's exciting. You know, yeah. Yeah. It is exciting when we put it that way, right? There's so much to do. But Never like a dull how, moment. Exactly. <laughs> but I like how you say how how impoverished our society is when it comes to the blind perspective. Impoverished. That is a great word. We're like yeah. we're we're just um we are dying of thirst for it. Really. Yeah. But. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's, and that's why I get so excited and kind of get chills when I talk about blind culture and about, you know, just the fact that we're doing this interview right now, you know, that, that, that you're going to come at this book in a way that a, a sighted reader is not. And I, and I think that that's probably true, you know, across the board, you know, that, yes, are there going to be interviews with sighted people? Yes, that's fine and dandy, but they can't yeah. all be from sighted people, you know, it's, yeah. we've got to have conversations that are allowed to be nuanced because we're, we're two people coming from things with some similar experiences. I just happened to catch, um, in the acknowledgements at the end, you mentioned something about your father who is no longer with us, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. you mentioned how he didn't seem to think that there would be any interest in a book like this. And I just think it's important. I don't know whether you yeah. want to speak to that directly, but the fact is that we assume that all family members know us and understand us, and that's not the case at all. And it's yeah. not like to pick on family, and it's not that we don't love them or they don't love us. But it's, yeah. I didn't know if you have anything to say on that, or if you want, I can go on to the last question. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say that my dad um, was disabled in his mm-hmm. last years. And, I read that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so he, um, was really the, the, the kind of person that he, you know, he, he was really suffering in, in the last few years, he lost mm-hmm. all of his feeling in his feet and in his hands. And so he was in a wheelchair and it was, it was really, I mean, he could not even actually feel a glass to hold it. I mean, he had to kind of wrap his hands around it and, and look at it to know that he had his like fist around a wine glass or whatever. I mean, he was se- severely, disabled from what he had had been, you know, for most of his life. And he would still say things to me like, what am I complaining about? You know, look at you. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, but you know, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Like you're the one that's suffering, not me. You know, I'm okay with my disability and stuff. So um, I think on that, on, uh, in, in that way, yes, my dad definitely didn't get it, you know, and I, I think he, 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 
would not have a, been a person because of the generation that he's part of, just because of his personality, because he spent many years in the military, it just the yep. kind of dude that he was. It, it never would have crossed his mind to think about, you know, disability culture or, um, you know, specifically in my case, blind culture. And so I think when I was kind of talking about what I was just beginning to do, and honestly, he 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 passed away right before I. I sold my book. So mm-hmm. it was all very theoretical, you know, I'm like working on this proposal, working on this proposal, him being uninterested, <laughs> you know, and, and not understanding what, what I was doing. So um, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, somebody can, can love you and, you know, respect you and all of those things and still not have a, a clue as to what you're about. And, and I, you know, I bet this holds true for a lot of people who write, you know, I mean, writing a weird thing. And especially when you're in the process of like writing a proposal, that's like all consuming, but nothing to show for it. (laughs) It's pretty hard. I think on, on all writers to kind of explain that to our loved ones, you know, Mm -hmm. so in that way, it kind of maybe exacerbates it with disability involved, but Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's very often the case. And like I said, just for me as a reader who has been waiting for a book like this, I I want all my friends and family to read this book. And and I think, but they know me and they know blindness and they accept me, but that doesn't mean they're going to read this book and maybe they they don't have to, and maybe they never will, or maybe they will someday, right? Like all the pressure I put on them that I think that you should should want to read this or blind people should want to read this, but um, also yeah. the fact that if I ever did want to write a book myself, watching you and other people doing it, it's like, you know, you think about, well, I want my parents to see me do that. And then if they're yeah. not here someday, when it actually would ever happen. And uh, so it just made me think. So I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Don't put it off till, till middle age. It's like, it gets <laughs> there. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So last question. And this is um, one that's sort of circling back. Um, you open the book talking about the vast dappled regions between darkness and light, and you end with that word again, dappled. Yeah. Um, yeah. What significance does that um, particular word carry for you to start and end the book with? With it. Yeah. I guess it feels. Um, uh, how do you say it? Um, it feels loosened from the. Um, the associations that we have with the the negativity and the positivity and the the binary the binaries of darkness and light you know i really liked the in betweenness of it and the the fact that it has kind of a, like it has such a poetic feel to it um mm-hmm. And, and it also just feels kind of very much like how I feel like I see the world, you know, I I mean, I usually call it kind of pixelated, but I think dappled also kind of works, but um, the idea that there's, there's neither one thing nor the other, right? There's neither darkness nor light. It's all mixed up in some varying degree that probably has a lot to do with your own uh, feelings about that particular dappled thing, you know, of like, is there more light or there more darkness? And I feel like mm-hmm. it also speaks to, you know, just in a physical way, how so many of us uh, visually impaired people see, right? We see some something of the world. Um, and, and so many mm-hmm. blind people who 
look like they're blind because they're carrying a cane or whatever are actually seeing some portion of the world that might you know be dappled but it was really because it has a poetic sense and that it's a a mixed sense that sounds quite beautiful to, to me you know kind of like um like that mixing of darkness and light is beautiful you know and and i guess yeah. i wanted to to exploit that in in this book Great. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, carry on and yep, keep in too. touch and, uh, <laughs> and talk awesome. soon. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Okay. Uh, thank, thanks, thank Carrie. And thanks to Brian too for, for helping out. Yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Excellent. All right. Bye guys. Bye, Leona. Bye. You have been listening to a conversation my Outlook co-host Carrie conducted over Zoom on the 24th of June, 2021 with author Dr. M. Leona Godin, discussing her book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. Their Plant Eyes is published through Pantheon Books and is available as an ebook, audiobook, and hardcover wherever books are sold. This conversation resulted in an interview Carrie had published called Fighting the Weightiness of Metaphors, a conversation with M. Leona Godan. It can be found at therumpus.net. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook facebook.com slash outlook on Radio Western.